Welcome to the law school. I'm Kristen Eikens here. I'm the director of the National Security Law Center. And on behalf of the center and UVA Law, I want to welcome all of our visitors to Charlottesville for a day of discussion on the economic tools of national security. So these tools of economic statecraft are not new, but the United States is doing new things with them. They're being repurposed and they're being asked to do more, to take on bigger challenges and harder targets. Top of mind today, of course, is Russia as we mark the first year after Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine. It's a good time to discuss how the United States has used sanctions and export controls to attempt to degrade Russia's ability and will to continue fighting this war. And of course, there's also China, which has been in the news a lot in the last few months with respect to export controls and ongoing investment screening efforts. So our goal for today is to take stock of both the past and the present iterations of these economic tools, and also to look toward the future and to consider the role that they're likely to play, the increasingly large role they're likely to play in US national security and foreign relations going forward. So I want to say just a few thank yous before we uh, get started with the keynote. First thank you is a, is a big one to all of our speakers, all of whom have traveled to Charlottesville today, uh, as have some of our audience members. We are delighted to have you here to share your expertise and grateful for your engagement with our community, both our, our professor community, our Charlottesville community, and especially with our students. I also want to say thank you to my co-convener, Professor Ashley Deeks, and to our events director, yes, uh, our events director, Rebecca Claff, without whom we definitely could not have pulled off this event. And thanks also to our communications and our IT teams who have made this all go so smoothly. And I also want to say a special thank you to Vice Dean Mike Gilbert and to Dean Risa Golyaboff, both of whom are incredibly supportive of all of our national security program, including today's uh, event. So I will turn it over to Dean Golyaboff to introduce our keynote speaker. Uh, thank you, Kristen, for those welcoming remarks. I am delighted to be with you today, and I want to thank Kristen and Ashley Deeks as well for organizing this important conference and our National Security Law Center for sponsoring it. Um, I also want to echo Kristen's thanks of Rebecca Claff and our events team, as well as our communications folks and law IT and building services. It takes a village to put on events like this, and we are lucky to have a tremendous village. Um, Finally, I want to say thank you to our panelists and to everyone who has joined us here today. I hope you students know how lucky you are to have access to all of these amazing people. We are really thankful that you're here uh, and delighted uh, to learn from you. Uh, some of you are familiar, some of you not. You've, uh, some of you have come from quite far, uh, and we really appreciate it. I'm especially thrilled to introduce today's keynote speaker, uh, Neil McBride. Neil serves as a general counsel at the Department of the Treasury. He was appointed to the role by President Biden and confirmed by a bipartisan Senate vote. He was sworn in on February 22nd, 2022, just two days before Russia invaded Ukraine. In this role, Neil is the chief legal officer for the department. He leads more than 2,000 attorneys who work uh, at Treasury, and he is also the principal advisor to Secretary Yellen and other senior leaders on a wide variety of issues, including domestic finance, terrorism finance, financial crimes enforcement, international economic affairs, and tax policy. Before his service at the Treasury Department, Neil led the Washington, D.C. office of Davis Polk and Wardwell, where he also served as litigation partner and co-head of the firm's government investigations practice. 
He also spent more than 15 years in government in a variety of roles as Associate Deputy Attorney General for Criminal Enforcement at the Department of Justice, as the U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Virginia, as Chief Counsel to Senate, Senator Joe Biden on the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee, and as a line prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in uh, the District of Columbia. He has also served as general counsel to the Business Software Alliance and practiced law at the DC law firm of Werner Lipford, which has since become part of DLA Piper. Neil is a graduate of Houghton College and this very law school, and he began his legal career as a law clerk to the Honorable Henry Morgan of the Eastern District of Virginia. I often tell you students that careers are long and varied, and I tell you that they can and often do incorporate both public service and private practice, and I think Neil's career is a model in both senses. He has forged a career at the nexus of national security, financial enforcement, law enforcement, and complex civil litigation as both a longtime public servant, as a big firm lawyer, and as an industry GC. It is truly impressive to see all that you have accomplished in so many important realms on so many important topics. I'm proud to call Neil a friend and one of our own here at the University of Virginia School of Law, and I can't wait to hear his remarks today. So please join me in welcoming to the lectern General Counsel of the Department of the Treasury, Neil McBride. Uh, what the dean didn't mention, uh, it must have fallen off that very long, tedious CV she was reading from, but. Uh, two of my law school roommates were Jim Ryan and Tim Hafey. I guess they weren't available to speak today, and, and I was the, um, I, I the stand-in. But uh, thank you for that kind introduction. And um, to Kristen and Ashley, thank you for the invitation to be here and to the National Security Law Center for organizing. Uh, two quick housekeeping matters. First, to the law students in the room, uh, I'm impressed. Um, if, if there had been a conference held in February of uh, 1992, when I was uh, here last year as, as a student, uh, I'm not sure I would have been out of bed by 11.30 after a night of bar review followed by um, a Feb Club appearance. Um, thankfully, I had a 1.30 uh, federal courts uh, class with Professor Jeffries, which was a an incentive to get out of bed and actually not to stay up uh, uh, too late. So, but to the law students who are here today, thank you for, uh, thank you for coming out. Uh, also understand there are a few undergrads here today, and uh, one of which is my daughter Charlotte, who's a third year at the College of Arts and Sciences. She's a history major. She promised she would come today if I didn't embarrass her. It occurs to me I may have violated that rule in the first couple of minutes. So apologies, Charlotte, but thanks for being here. So I'm, I'm always um, thrilled at any chance to come back to this, this law school. Uh, today's topic is, is one that I didn't really think a bit about as, as a law student. I think if this conference were held 30 years ago, it would be uh, quite a different conference than it is today in, in terms of national security. My perception 30 years ago was that national security dealt with you know, treaty obligations um, and um, you know, use of military force. This, of course, was before 9-11 and, and um, the events of the last 20 years. I mean, to be clear, Treasury sanctions were a thing back then. Uh, the Commerce Department's Export Control Program, which my friend Matt Axelrod's gonna speak about, th those were around, but in, in my sense, 
um, we have a much broader view today of how those tools and others come together to constitute uh, national security and the important economic levers of, of today's um, uh, focus. So I, I hope that um, recognizing that there are multiple audiences in the audience today, that at least for the students, that, that today may be a, uh, a portal into what um, working as a lawyer in the national security field uh, is like in a way that, that I think is profoundly different than it was um, 30 years ago. Um, and where the, the you know, so-called regulatory tools that we're gonna talk about today are absolutely as important as the you know, more, quote, traditional kinetic tools um, or even the law enforcement tools that um, got most of the attention in the days after 9-11. And then just a point, as a point of personal um, privilege, since I am at my alma mater, I do wanna thank UVA Law School that, as, as the dean was just saying, I, I heard from all of my professors, Professor Jeffries, Professor Martin, who's here today, um, that a UVA law degree is not just sort of a, a passport to privilege, but um, you know, being brought into a community of, of, um, of lawyers that, that is, is another graduate of this law school, Robert Kennedy said in a speech at Columbia University, um, he talked about the quasi-public nature of, of lawyers, regardless of whether you're in the so-called public square or the private square. And so thank you to this law school for um, giving me a broader vision, um, which has, along with a good bit of serendipity, helped um, guide my career. So as, as we know, today's the one-year mark of Russia's illegal and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. I remember um, my phone starting to buzz around 11 p.m. on February uh, 23rd, which of course was six hours ahead of the invasion. The invasion is, is, is marked today because that's what time it was in Ukraine, but the, the, the first tanks started going across the border late on the evening of what was um, Thursday, February 23rd, a year ago. And, um, you know, at that time, I think Russia believed that uh, Ukraine would, be, would fall within a matter of days or weeks. Um, and I think we've all seen that, that the courage and resilience and resolve of the Ukrainian people and its leaders have, have truly in, inspired the world. Uh, Treasury, along with other agencies that, that are here today, has, has played in a critical role in the last year in national security issues um, broadly and, and related to the war. I'm gonna uh, focus directly on sanctions today, but my colleague Mina Sharma from Treasury will speak later about uh, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, or CFIUS, which plays an, is an important national security tool. Um, Treasury's FinCEN division, uh, or Bureau, is, is involved in anti-money laundering, which is another important tool. But today we're gonna to talk about sanctions. And to contextualize the discussion, I wanna start by providing a, an overview of how sanctions have evolved, uh, the process for utilizing sanctions uh, and their legal framework, and then sort of conclude with uh, discussions on the sanctions strategy of Treasury over the last year or so, uh, under the leadership of my bosses, Secretary Yellen and Deputy Secretary Adeyemo. But to sort of start at the beginning, roughly, 80 years ago, um, 
what do we mean by sanctions? Just as a level set, uh, when, when, um, when the Treasury Department talks about sanctions, uh, we mean those tools that are used to disrupt, deter, and prevent uh, foreign threats that undermine U.S. national security. And um, if you walked into this conference this morning thinking it was a different conference and are, are just new to sanctions, there are really two general categories of, of sanctions that we're going to be talking about today. The first are so-called comprehensive sanctions, which essentially prohibit U.S. persons, by U.S. persons I mean people, individuals, as well as U.S. companies, uh, but prevent U.S. persons from engaging in commercial activity with regard to an entire country. Um, think Iran or, or North Korea. Um, secondly, um, the second bucket of sanctions are referred to as targeted or list-based sanctions, which prohibit U.S. persons, again, individuals or companies, from engaging in transactions with specific foreign individuals, foreign businesses, or foreign groups who are put on a list of designated uh, persons. The Treasury maintains a number of these lists, but for today's purposes, the most important list is called the Specially Designated National List, or the SDN list. And if you get placed on the, uh, the SDN list, what it means is that U.S. persons are, are blocked from engaging in any transactions with any SDN, uh, and they're required to, if you're a bank, for example, to freeze the assets of any SDN on that list. And historically, the SDN list has covered and continues to cover uh, a wide array of individuals and entities. You know, terrorist organizations like Al-Qaeda or Hezbollah, uh, drug traffickers like the Sinaloa cartel, North Korean hacking groups like the Lazarus Group, as well as individuals like President Vladimir Putin uh, and other leaders of his regime, uh, human rights abusers and corrupt officials uh, around the globe. So, so to put it more concretely, when an individual or entity is designated, for example, uh, a U.S. bank is required to, to freeze any accounts held at that bank by that foreign person, uh, to stop any future transactions that that designated person might attempt to do with the frozen assets. It also means that U.S. persons cannot provide any services to that designated individual. They can't buy anything from them. They can't sell anything to them. And given how important the U.S. banking system is across the globe, this effectively you know, cuts the designated person, the SDN, off from the global financial system. Treasury's involvement in sanctions um, began in 1940, uh, the, the eve of the Second World War. And after um, Nazi Germany invaded uh, Norway and Denmark in April of 1940, President R Roosevelt issued uh, a decree under a somewhat obscure statute, the Trading with the Enemies Act, which I believe was passed in 1917. And he issued an executive order for the first time that froze um, the US-based assets of any person that lived in Norway or Denmark. And it was a prophylactic step FDR took uh, to freeze those assets before um, you know, the Nazi regime was able to, to uh, expropriate those assets. And as the Wehrmacht you know, continued its blitzkrieg across Europe um, in the early 40s, Roosevelt uh, responded in turn by imposing uh, more sanctions and more sanctions. 
And in time, eventually all U.S. held uh, property of the Axis powers uh, were blocked, were frozen. Uh, Roosevelt then uh, assigned to the Treasury Department and Secretary Henry Morgenthau the responsibility for administering these sanctions, which led to the creation of a small obscure office called the Office of Foreign Funds Control, which is still around today. It's, it operates under a new name, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC, uh, but that was, the, that was the birth of OFAC and the, and the Treasury um, sanctions role. And um, it was something that Secretary Morgenthau referred to as the unseen front uh, of the economic war to try and um, undermine the, uh, the Hitler's war machine through depriving it uh, of much needed hard currency. Following the Second World War, during the Cold War, U.S. presidents continued to utilize economic sanctions. Uh, as, as many will know, in the 1950s, the U.S. imposed what I refer to as comprehensive sanctions, that first bucket, against specific countries like North Korea uh, and China, and in time, other countries, Cuba, Vietnam, Cambodia, where essentially it was like a trade embargo, like the entire country uh, was, was off uh, limits. Uh, in the late 70s, Congress enacted a new law uh, referred to as IEPA, um, the International Emergency Economic, Economic Powers Act. And it's sort of built on the earlier statute I referred to. Um, and since that time, over the last uh, 40 years, under uh, this statute, IEPA, uh, U.S. presidents have had the authority to block U.S. persons from engaging in transactions uh, as a means of addressing, quote, the statute says, unusual or extraordinary threats to national security. Quote, if the president declares a national emergency with respect to such a threat. And to establish a, a, a sanctions program, then the, the law requires the president to issue a specific, uh, particularized executive order that identifies a new national uh, emergency. And so over, over this time period, many of these executive orders um, refer to geographically uh, specific threats, uh, not necessarily an entire country, but threats emanating from uh, a particular country. Uh, but many executive orders in recent times uh, recognize national emergencies based on uh, global threats that may emanate from any number of countries, things like weapons proliferation or global terrorism or malicious cyber-enabled uh, activities. And the executive order will generally delegate the president's authority under IEPA either to the Secretary of Treasury or the Secretary of State, or both, to undertake appropriate uh, action. And it's under this uh, delegated authority that, that Treasury then can issue and enforce uh, new sanctions programs. So while sanctions had, had traditionally sort of been akin to an embargo by sort of taking out an entire country, sort of removing it from the the commercial playing field, so to speak, that really began to change in the 1990s. And in the early 90s, um, the U.S. imposed, for example, targeted uh, financial sanctions on the Serbian strongman uh, Slobodan Milosevic, later convicted as a war criminal, uh, but targeted Milosevic and his regime, uh, which proved to be a, a helpful tactic in eventually driving him to the um, negotiations of the Dayton Peace Accords. In 1995, uh, Bill Clinton, President Clinton, 
issued an executive order to address the significant narco-trafficking threat out of uh, Colombia, which resulted in sanctioning a number of drug kingpins and their affiliates and associates uh, in Colombia, which, um, uh, again, worked with, with, um, with, with good effect. It was really, though, as a result of the, the tragic events of September 11th, 2001, that sanctions really moved to the, the forefront of U.S. foreign policy, along with, with other tools we're going to be discussing today. And um, I, I had, a, um, in a sense, a front row seat to this. I, as as um, the dean mentioned, I had the uh, privilege of working for then-Senator Biden uh, as his chief counsel in the Senate from 2001 to 2005. I had just started my new job uh, a few days before 9-11. And uh, after the second tower was hit, the uh, Capitol Police evacuated all of the members of Congress, their staffs. I was standing outside the Capitol with, with then-Senator Biden when we heard that a, a third plane had hit the Pentagon. And he turned to me and said something to the effect of, your job description just changed. And I, I heard the words, but in the moment I had, I had frankly no idea what he, what he meant by that and wondered if I had misheard him. But I, I quickly um, learned exactly what he meant, sort of on just a personal, practical level. I, was drop, I, I had to drop all the other you know, legislative issues we were working on and, and work sort of full-time on, on forthcoming national security legislations. But, but more broadly, I think, I think what the president meant was that he, in that moment, recognized that the U.S. government uh, had been attacked um, and, and fundamentally needed to shift its, its national security uh, paradigm to utilize the full set of tools across all of government uh, to counter national security threats including diplomacy and sanctions and export controls and enforcement and intelligence collection and kinetic force and that it would require, you know, the Departments of State, Defense, Commerce, Treasury, the IC to, to come together uh, as sort of a team of teams. And I think the President was also previewing what, what eventually the, the Blue Ribbon 9-11 Commission would later refer to as, as joint action, meaning that the government had to consider which tool or tools was, was right in a specific circumstance um, and, and where, wherever possible to utilize tools in, in, in combination, complementary tools. Um, and, and, and so in my view, the September 11th attacks really marked a crucial turning point in how the U.S. utilized its foreign policy, national security, and economic security tools. Um, and it indeed did mark uh, a paradigm shift to a world that I, I don't think existed nearly to as much an extent when, when I was a, a student here 30 years ago. Less than two weeks after the 9-11 attacks, uh, many will remember that, that President George W. Bush issued a new executive order which allowed Treasury to designate any individual or entity that was involved in terrorist financing. Treasury soon began issuing uh, a series of designations targeted at, at terrorist financing. And to, uh, to supplement those, those actions, it undertook a quiet campaign of financial diplomacy in which we, the department, engaged partners and financial institutions around the globe on the importance of stopping 
uh, terrorist financing of Al-Qaeda and others. And, and by all accounts, those efforts uh, made real and demonstrable differences. Again, the 9-11 Commission, several years later, highlighted these, that these Treasury sanctions, quote, had a significant impact on Al-Qaeda's ability to raise and move funds and forced them to adopt, quote, slow, expensive, and less reliable methods of storing and moving money, such as the use of physical couriers. And for those of you who, who've seen the movie Zero Dark Thirty or, or know the, the, the story, it was Bin Laden's use of couriers both to move uh, money and to move intelligence that, that ultimately um, allowed him to be detected and, and tracked down. So it, it was the increased sort of relevance of, of Treasury's efforts um, that then were reflected in the creation of a new undersecretary at Treasury called the Office of Terrorism and Financial Intelligence. It was created in 2004, within several years of 9-11. And um, in the years, you know, since those early days after the terrorist attacks, uh, subsequent presidents have used uh, targeted sanctions against a variety of threats. Um, presidents have used sanctions to target um, rogue regimes like Burma and Sudan and Iran, uh, but also global threats that, that don't tie back to a specific um, country. And today, sanctions uh, target a, a wide range of threats to U.S. interests across 35 different sanctions programs. And, and sanctions have become, uh, referring just to this one particular tool, one of many, but sanctions have become, as, as De uh, Deputy Secretary Adeyemo put it, quote, the, the tool of first resort to address a range of national security, foreign policy, and economic uh, challenges. Um, so having talked a little bit about the historical framework of, of how U.S. sanctions evolved, um, to sort of the targeted tools that they are today as opposed to more sort of traditional embargo type tools. Let me talk a little bit about the sanctions process uh, and the legal framework for sanctions. So as I mentioned earlier, any new sanctions program starts with an executive order issued by a president pursuant to IEPA or, or related statute. Uh, the sanctions targeting strategy is then generally developed through the National Security Council's interagency process, something that Ashley remembers um, well. Uh, and, and based on policy objectives that are identified in that interagency process and, and consistent with the legal authorities of, of the executive order, OFAC sanctions investigators at Treasury work with partners across government to identify new targets uh, based on a review of an intelligence and open source information. They then pre prepare detailed uh, administrative records consistent with the APA that doc document the, the basis for those, those new designations. And then it's my office, the Office of, of uh, Treasury General Counsel, that conducts a legal review of those administrative records to ensure they meet the requirements laid out in IEPA and the executive order, as well as other legal require requirements under the Administrative Procedures Act. Um, because we know that sanctioned persons may try to lawfully, appropriately challenge a designation uh, in court. It's their prerogative. And we want to ensure that we're sanctioning the right people and that there's a strong record to defend those designations, having done so, um, against a variety of statutory or constitutional claims. An example is in 2018, Treasury designated Russian oligarch Oleg Deripaska. He subsequently filed suit, claiming that the designation was arbitrary and capricious under the APA. And the uh, 
District Court for DC, Matt Graves' uh, home district, uh, rejected that claim, uh, stressing its deference to uh, OFAC's um, determination and that it was appropriate given implicated, uh, given that designations implicate issues of national security and foreign policy. You know, this is an issue that Kristen has written about and, and, um, uh, and, and, and Ashley in terms of, um, you know, traditional deference afforded by courts and, and um, the history of that and, and the, the outlook for that going forward. Uh, when Treasury issues a new sanctions designation, the name of, of the individual is, is added to the SDN list. At present, there are over 10,000 names on that list, some going, going back a number of years, others um, a matter of days. And, and there were new sanctions announced this morning on the anniversary of the, uh, of the Ukraine um, invasion. Uh, in addition, U.S. persons are required to block any entity that's 50% or more owned by a designated entity, by an SDN, which is a, is a force multiplier and extends the reach um, of sanctions for affiliated companies. OFAC also issues regulations and guidance that clarify the precise scope of sanctions. Uh, it has authority to issue licenses, both general licenses as well as specific licenses to allow appropriate um, commercial engagement uh, in some circumstances with a particular country or, or a particular um, uh, SDN that has otherwise uh, been, been sanctioned. And then OFAC also promotes compliance um, with sanctions uh, where appropriate by taking enforcement actions as needed against um, a U.S. person that um, um, uh, notwithstanding the blocking order has some sort of commercial relationship with, um, with, with the blocked person. So companies uh, are expected to develop you know, risk-based uh, sanctions compliance programs uh, to ensure that you know, if you're a bank or a global company that you know sort of those tripwires and, and, and know um, what the sanctions, uh, the SDN landscape looks like. Uh, OFAC can bring civil enforcement uh, actions uh, under a strict liability theory that, that authority is, is available. Um, they can also bring, uh, if it's a willful violation as opposed to a, a strict liability one, that's an aggravating factor which, which can um, make it a more serious enforcement action by, by um, OFAC. And of course, um, there have been instances where there can be a criminal violation of sanctions where the Justice Department that would come in and, and do a follow-on or parallel uh, criminal prosecution in some instances. And, and speaking of justice, I would just highlight that OFAC has been, um, uh, in my view, a key strategic partner to our friends at the Justice Department, um, particularly in the last year, in going after illicit uh, financial networks. And uh, OFAC's civil enforcement regulators often work closely with criminal prosecutors in appropriate cases to um, share information where appropriate and, and bring joint action where that's, um, where that's warranted. And when I was U.S. Attorney in EDVA, there were a couple of times where my office worked closely with OFAC um, in, in parallel um, enforcement actions. One involving a, uh, a Hezbollah money launderer, another involving the head of a, a Mexican drug cartel, where OFAC was moving to sanction these individuals um, to make them you know, persona non grata in terms of the U.S. financial system, and DOJ was bringing its, its criminal tools 
to, um, to, to bring uh, accountability. Let me talk for just a minute about sort of where sanctions are today. So back in the, in the spring of 2021, Secretary Yellen uh, asked Deputy Treasury Secretary Adi Yamo to conduct a, a comprehensive review of how U.S. sanctions have, in, have evolved over the years, how they're currently being used, and how they could be uh, made uh, more effective or used in the most effective way possible. And this was the first study of, uh, re, you know, sort of 360 review of sanctions since the um, September 11th attacks, you know, 20 years ago at that point, and included extensive engagement across agencies and, and the interagency. Uh, that resulted in a report being released in October of 2021. It's on the Treasury website if, if anyone's interested. But that, that uh, report highlighted um, how sanctions um, can continue to be an effective tool, one of many, but an effective tool of, of U.S. foreign policy, and noted that the sanctions have been successful um, in a number of instances, you know, whether it's preventing Iran from, from um, access to the international financial system to generate funds for its, its missile programs, whether it's freezing billions of dollars in assets from narco-trafficking organizations, um, whether it's exposing and undermining um, and integrating uh, terrorist groups um, globally. At the same time, though, this 2021 review made clear that there are long-term risks to the efficacy of the sanctions tool as our adversaries attempt to build parallel um, payment systems sort of outside the, the traditional uh, dollar-based financial system. And so to ensure the continued efficacy of, of sanctions, the report made three basic conclusions. Um, one, that sanctions should um, always be part of a clear policy framework with specific identifiable uh, objectives. Two, that it should be part of a multilateral strategy, not sort of a go it alone, but, but as part of a, uh, a coalition of, of other like-minded um, countries to maximize their impact. And third, that sanctions should be strategically designed in a way to mitigate against um, unintended consequences. So those principles went from you know, being in a report on a, a Treasury website to um, suddenly moving you know, operationally uh, within a few months with uh, Russia's illegal uh, invasion of, of Ukraine a year ago today. And um, Treasury has hewed closely to that three part, uh, th those three conclusions, those strategic uh, conclusions and recommendations. I'll just briefly run through them. So, so first, Russia sanctions um, resulting from the Ukraine war ha have been indeed part of a clear policy framework. Um, early on, President Biden uh, made clear that the U.S. intended to ensure that Putin's invasion of, of Ukraine would, would be a, a strategic failure. And to that end, he issued, the President issued four uh, new executive orders between February and April of 2022 uh, that built upon an earlier executive order from Russia's uh, 2014 invasion of the Crimea region of, of Ukraine. And sort of flowing out of those, those five EOs, uh, Treasury has imposed uh, a number of sanctions, extensive sanctions uh, on Russia, not as a country, but its leadership, uh, its oligarchs, 
um, its war machine industries, et cetera, uh, with the goals of, of denying revenue to Putin's war and, and to make it harder and costlier for Russia's military industrial complex to, to prosecute that illegal war. And so, again, as part of this interagency policy review and in, in making target, uh, sanctions target designations I've discussed, um, sanctions uh, have been uh, utilized to achieve that uh, objective. They've resulted in the blocking of tens of billions of dollars in sanctioned Russian assets, uh, immobilizing about $300 billion worth of, of Russian central bank assets. Um, sanctions have been applied in, in ways to specifically target Russia's revenue and its ability to obtain you know, key raw uh, materials for its military industrial uh, complex. And sanctions um, have been one tool, a, a complementary tool, along uh, with others that you, you, know, you will hear about over the course of the day. Uh, second, sanctions have been part of a multilateral uh, strategy. And, and even before the conflict began on uh, February 24th, a year ago, um, Treasury and other agencies, USG agencies, have uh, began to coordinate a robust international a coalition in anticipation um, to a war in, in, in response to that war. Um, and this global coalition of, of more than in 30 nations, which represent roughly half of the global um, GDP, um, has been an essential component um, uh, to the, the success of these, these sanctions. Um, so President Putin and his cronies are not only blocked from access to the U.S. financial system, but also to the yen, to the euro, uh, to the pound sterling uh, as well. And it's been this breadth of the coalition that has um, made it much more possible to, to economically isolate Russia, to deprive them of funding needed um, to prosecute the war. Uh, as part of the global co uh, cooperation, just as a, a concrete example, uh, Justice Department and Treasury Department came together with um, uh, G7 finance and justice ministers to, to create something called the Russian Elite, Elites, Proxies, and Oligarchs Task Force. It's a mouthful. It goes by the uh, acronym REPO, the REPO Task Force. And it's, it's a multilateral um, effort, an international effort, and um, these countries have, have worked uh, together, particularly to focus on um, the use of sort of opaque legal structures to try and hide or shield assets of, of for example, Russian oligarchs who, who've been designated by Treasury and other, other countries. And so, you know, a couple, couple examples of, of how that's played out in, in real world uh, uh, terms. Um, the task force working, um, U.S. working with its, its global partners, um, targeted a, a Russian oligarch by the name of Suleiman Karamov, who had previously been designated by Treasury. Uh, in March of last year, the Justice Department uh, seized his $300 million yacht, which was in Fiji, um, where he was apparently trying to, you know, shield it from the, the long arm of, of um, the coalition. Uh, similarly, um, this oligarch, Karamov, had a Delaware-based trust with about a billion dollars uh, of assets sort of, you know, hidden in this trust, and OFAC uh, was able to 
to seize and block that. So just one example involving a, a, a particular oligarch um, who has been um, denied significant um, access to significant significant assets. And that has been multiplied over many other examples that time doesn't allow us to go into, but um, it is, those sanctions have had, are having significant impact on the Russian economy. Uh, Russian industrial production has declined now for, for nine consecutive months. Um, Russia is, is facing, it's been reported in the press, you know, significant challenges in producing weapons as it's um, denied access to raw materials for tanks, submarines, aircraft. It's running out of you know, microchips for its defense systems. Uh, and as, as, as Russia has lost more equipment on the battlefield it's, and, and finds itself more isolated economically, unable to backfill um, critical sort of raw materials, um, it's been you know, forced to turn to countries like North Korea and Iran for you know, inferior military equipment. In some instances, it's literally reaching back to mothballed Soviet-era uh, military equipment to replace its battlefield losses of, of newer, better stuff. Um, and so, you know, the coalition is, is going to continue to stand with Ukraine, and particularly in the coming year, we'll be focused on countering uh, sanctions evasion uh, to the extent that that, uh, that, that rogue operators are, are trying to get around them. And then finally, sanctions you know, has been employed in a way that is, is trying to target Putin's war machine while um, minimizing unintended consequences. And this, is, this you know, includes using targeted sanctions, making clear that you know, they're, they're not meant to restrict humanitarian efforts. Um, an example of, of a, uh, a, a, a relatively new sanction designed to, to accomplish this goal is the, uh, uh, the oil price cap that the U.S. and our G7 partners worked together to, um, uh, to roll out in the last, in the last few months, uh, which is aimed at Russian both crude oil and, and refined products. And under this new framework, sort of in a nutshell, providers of, of maritime services in, in the G7 are prevented from shipping Russian crude oil uh, or Russian refined product unless, that sh unless Russia is selling that oil at an established price cap, which is uh, below the price they would like to sell oil. And so this, this mechanism was designed to and, and it is working to accomplish two goals. First, it's, it's cutting into key uh, energy revenue sources for Putin to, to fund the war. Uh, and second, to, to, to stabilize um, global energy markets by keeping Russian oil on the market, but, but at a discounted uh, rate. And um, the, the policy is, is, is working. Putin's oil revenues have decreased while global energy markets are, are remaining um, stable. And so I mention this just because it's a, it's a new and different sort of um, sanction that's, 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 that's targeted, um, you know, focusing on reducing revenues while not having unintended consequences in the energy markets, involved using, you know, a, a, a team of, of expert, you know, energy economists to come alongside traditional um, 
you know, sanctions national security uh, experts to, to work um, with a, a creative uh, solution. So in, in, in some, the, the three sort of uh, principles or, or recommendations of that 2021 20, um, sanctions review, uh, I believe have been um, yeah, utilized successfully in the last, uh, the last year. So um, I will wrap up uh, here, but um, you know, just leave you with, uh, again, you know, particularly for students, uh, th you know, this is a new, a new world uh, of, of economic um, levers that are critically part of, of the national security toolkit in, in ways that are new and different and, and evolving um, since 9-11 and, and, and maybe um, evolving again. And um, we, we uh, at, at Treasury, want to make sure that sanctions are, are being you know, used wisely and prudently and in a targeted uh, fashion um, in a way to, to degrade, uh, in this instance, um, Russia's war-making capacity while minimizing um, unintended uh, consequences. So um, with that, thank you very much and happy to sit down or answer a question or two.